HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Restaurants are startups. Why don't more of them get funded by venture funding? Find out on today's episode of Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. Happy 2018. This is the very first episode of Tech Bytes for the year. It is January 18th, 2018, and we are live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, inside two shipping containers that are the Heritage Radio Network studios. We broadcast from Roberta's Pizza, which is a great place to be on a 25-degree, cold, brisk, wintry morning. I'm excited to start this year off. I'm excited to have our guest with us today, Charlie O'Donnell, who's the founder and partner of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Happy to be here. I'm also happy to be talking to our listeners from 150 countries around the world. That's about a million listens a month. Um, Things are looking really great for 2018, and I'm excited. We are going to start off today's episode, like we always do, talking about apps apps for the new year, maybe old ones that you just keep and hang on to since you've had your phone 10 years ago. We'll start off with David Tattashore, who is our engineer and Heritage Radio Network's studio manager. David, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to be back, even though I'm not quite 100%, but getting there. Uh, if you were, if you had a, a battery percentage over your head, what would it say? Uh, I'll say 86. <laughs> so you're you're okay. 86 is good. Yeah, it's decent. It's decent. You don't need to be plugged in, and I would take you on the subway. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How was your holiday break? It was great. Um, I did a little bit of traveling, um, which actually segues nicely into my app that I got a lot of use out of. And uh, it's been mentioned on the show before, but... 
uh, signal was was uh, invaluable for me in other countries uh, to communicate with my friends and um, you know not use uh, mobile data. I didn't like bother setting up a mobile plan just because it wasn't really necessary. I was able to get on Wi-Fi in most places, so signal was great to stay in touch. And you were traveling internationally, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The the Wi-Fi, the free Wi-Fi messaging apps are great for international travel. Yeah. yeah, and that way I didn't have to dip into the, what is it, travel pass or whatever that Verizon offers. Um, it's, it's actually a, a pretty affordable thing, but uh, I just decided not to bother. I usually put my phone on airplane mode when I get on the plane and then don't take it off until I land yeah, exactly. at the airport. And then I just use Wi-Fi. I also like WhatsApp, which is a similar yeah, I was I was kind of forced to get WhatsApp by uh, one group of friends that I was traveling with because that was what they used. But um, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, so I I wasn't keen on, on oh. using them. Um, well, good point, fair point. Follow your follow your convictions all through to your app usage. Yeah, Signal all the way. Okay, Charlie. Do you have an app that you like right now? And the only rule is that you're not allowed to talk about an app that you've invented, own, or invest in. Sure. Well, not to play into something that's usually overhyped, but uh, I do find myself checking the Coinbase app on a regular basis because uh, everything going on in the Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and all that world is... Um, very exciting um, and, and more exciting because it uh, uh, crashes and, and surges every day. And so it's a little bit like a, a roller coaster to, um, to, to be involved in that a little bit. Is it, I get the sense that it's almost like watching a currency child grow up in many ways because it's so new and it's so unpredictable. And it sort of grows in leaps and bounds and then regresses and has tantrums and it's kind of crazy and nobody really understands what it's saying. But it has a lot of value and a lot of potential. I think a lot of people are hoping it has a lot of potential. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. I'm uh, just uh, trying to trade off of the ups and downs and uh, doing an okay job of it. But uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Are you participating in it because it's current and it's interesting? Do you think it's a really viable financial investment? Is it just to stay current and find out what's happening? Is that the best way to understand something, to get yeah, involved I, in it? I think there's some aspect of trying to follow it and stay current and have a, a little bit of a vested interest. But I think from uh, a fund investor standpoint, I think a lot of aspects of it are very, very early um, there's still a lot of regulation left to go on it. The SEC is taking a look at it, uh, international regulators. And so despite the reputation of VCs going early on things, you, you don't want to go so early that you might make an investment in something that two months after you make an investment of it, the government declares it illegal or, <laughs> or you know, you have to unwind it in a, in a really messy way. And so uh, you want some element of stable footing because, you know, you're trying to build companies that are going to be around for five, six, seven years. And, and I don't think the, uh, the, the ice flows are quite solidified on, on this yet to, to know where that's going. And I think some of the investors are just essentially backing smart teams and they're just saying, okay, well, 
if I hold on to this team for a few years, they will be able to figure it out and be eyes wide open about it. But it's really hard to come up with a really stable, substantive business plan in that space. Especially because it's so challenging to understand exactly what it is and how it works in many ways. It's, it's very different from here's a pile of money or here's a, a weight of some valuable commodity that we can translate into a value or here's a thing that we're going to sell. It's, it's so theoretical. Sometimes I think it's even harder to wrap your head around yeah, what it, is, it even is. The, the actual instruments are fairly technical. Um, when you, you get into it and you, uh, you find the rare person that can actually sit down and explain it to you, which given how few people there are, yet so many people that are invested in it, it is sort of troubling. Um, it's, it's not that bad, but I think um, there's a lot of pieces that just aren't quite there yet for um, even institutional investors, let alone the average person, to be going in in a, in a major way. So, you know, you read stories of people uh, taking money off of their credit cards to invest in Bitcoin. That is not something that any individual should be doing. <laughs> and you just assume, assume you're going to lose all of it. Yeah, yeah. Tech Bytes public service announcement. I'm, I'm, I'll be waiting for the uh, Bitcoin for Dummies book to come out. There you go. That's probably will, a good know, Which will explain start. it to everyone. My favorite stories are the ones about, you know, the college kids who start mining in their dorm rooms and, you know, that kind of thing. I like those stories. You I know, it's funny. Fun. You, you could do that early on. And now the speed at which information travels and things become professionalized and and money flows, right? Like there was a period of time where you could make money doing that and now you've got hedge funds piling you know there's there's a lot of money in the world and it seeks return and it seeks return very quickly and that's why you get you know bubbles in real estate and bubbles in in other stuff and so it's like almost as soon as the average person's making money on something some bigger pool of money comes and ruins it. it up yeah well my app this week is called think dirty shop clean and it's not quite a new one. It's been around since 2013, but it's a new one for me. I, I recently discovered it. We talk so much on Tech Bytes and on Heritage Radio Network and in the media about the food we eat and where it comes from. And everybody talks about clean eating and organic. We talk about creating an environment that's clean. But we don't talk quite as much about what you put on your body as much as you put in your body. So makeup, cosmetics you know, healthcare, laundry detergent, all those kinds of things. That's another one of those segments where people are becoming more and more uh, curious and concerned and conscientious about what they put on themselves. So Think Dirty is a fun app. You scan the barcode of a product or search a product and it gives you a list of the ingredients. And then based on the list of the ingredients, it gives you a ranking on how clean or dirty or carcinogenic it is. It also provides a little shopping environment. If you want to look at some all-natural products, it'll link you out to Amazon or other sources. Um, it will also um, just show listings of different things. And I think it's a lot of fun. It's the kind of thing where I could see myself you know, spending two hours in the drugstore just sort of like scanning all these different things that I want to buy. Um, because I do think it, it's kind of counter, you know, it's kind of counterproductive if you spend so much time and attention to, you know, eat wonderfully produced chemical-free things, but then you just sort of slather on, 
you know, terrible things on, on the outside. Um, it is crowdsourced a little bit, the information. They have about 350,000 products now. A lot of my Korean beauty products um, weren't listed, but they ask you to, if you scan the barcode and it's not in their database, they ask you to take a picture of the front and back of the product and send it to them, and then they will presumably go through the process of adding it to their database and, and vetting it and all that. So it's a fun product. It started by a woman in Canada whose mother had um, a bout with cancer, and then that sort of drove her desire to take a look at what was in cosmetics and, and health products. And interestingly, that that category is not really FDA regulated, so you don't have the same checks and balances from the government entities to tell you that this is okay. You can kind of do what you want and put what you want on the box. So I'm actually testing a safe deodorant at the moment. There's a startup that is uh, doing some products in this space, and it is an aluminum-free, um, you know, very very carefully. Uh, constructed uh, deodorant that is safe for human beings and so far it seems like it's working <laughs> I hope yes well so far in the shipping container it seems okay yeah. we're in a closed <laughs> environment we are quite far away from each other um, and we're wearing big sweaters because it's very cold still yeah so think dirty shop clean that's a fun one um, I, I, I'm, it's for Android and iPhone and of course it's free so we have Charlie here today. Again, Charlie O'Donnell, he's the founder and partner of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, which is the first fund in Brooklyn. Um, it's about $23 million across two funds. He likes to do seed investing, pre-product, sometimes pre-deck. And he has invested in some interesting food companies and food startups, one of them being Agrilist, which is virtual agronomist. Alison Koff, who was on episode 106 of Tech Bytes. She's fantastic. She's and super really smart. Great. Mm -hmm. Super smart. Um, super smart, but really a good communicator because she can explain it in a way that's engaging and not like agronomy for dummies. <laughs> for sure. We had a great conversation before the show about why more restaurants and food products are not funded by venture capital. And it's an interesting question, and I think it's a relevant one. Um, yeah, I've always thought of restaurants as being the original startup. You know, you have this idea, you get some crowdfunding together from friends and family, you know, round of investing, you come up with a product, you try it out, you try and get traction, you know, you grow. Um, it, it really replicates a lot of the tech startups, but for some reason we don't see venture funding in restaurants. And why is that? Well, it has happened. Uh, it happens rarely. And so, for example, P.F. Chang's is venture-backed and uh, Blue Bottle raised some venture money, but the vast majority don't. And you have to understand venture capital is a form of financing like anything else, right? So when somebody starts a business, they usually, the primary source of financing is their own savings, right? And they are the venture capitalists. They decide that they are worth the bet and they're going to take their savings and, and, and put it into the down payment on their storefront and the oven and, and the materials and all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, for many people that winds up being a very good bet. Um, Different forms of financing come with different expectations on behalf of the person who's giving you money. 
So you take out a bank loan, they expect interest and a, and a payment back at a certain time. If you, they don't get that, they'll, they'll take that pizza oven or whatever they have that's sort of collateralizing it. Your, your friends and family might have a certain level of expectation. A venture capitalist is building a portfolio of you know 20 or 30 investments at a time and they are really looking for the home run they are looking for companies that have the ability to exit to go public or to sell to another company for you know anywhere from 250 million dollars to billions of dollars right and so you're talking about the you know uh Facebooks and and you know Amazon's and eBay's and and all of those companies, or for example in the the food space like a Shake Shack or you know Blue Apron became a public company and and Plated sold for two hundred million dollars and so there are some food businesses that that set their sights from day one on you know being achieve being able to achieve those kinds of outcomes and. That takes a lot of time. So you need patient capital. You need capital that uh, is willing to take some some bigger risks. Um, and the capital is okay if it doesn't work out. I mean, my expectation in my fund is that 50% of the companies will probably go out of business and be zero return for me. 50%. <coughs> 50%. That seems high to me. That is That seems high, high. And, and very risky on your end. It is very risky, but when a payoff happens, when you know that that one or two companies in any fund goes public or sells for five hundred million dollars, the returns are fifty x, a hundred x, and so the good ones make up for the ones that that didn't make it. And for many entrepreneurs, you know, starting a a business or starting a restaurant with the right out of the gate has a, a 50% chance of being literally an outright failure. I mean, some restaurants run for a few years and sure. they, they decide to not do it anymore, but um, that's maybe riskier capital than they want someone pushing them to, to make choices around. So, so many interesting things that you, you just said sort of describing the the process and the philosophy and some of the ideas behind venture venture funding when people st- typically when people start a food business or a restaurant business mm-hmm. a food product um, most of the you know spreadsheets and proposals and things that they're looking at in terms of how the business will open and run and finance itself they're looking at things in the 18 months to maybe 5 year range um, they're looking at, you know, maybe being able to pay investments back in, you know, 18, 24, three years, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The margins are extremely low. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen or heard of a restaurant or food product proposal that had something where they could get to that number so quickly, where they could get to a number of $250 million in sales or revenue in a, in a five-year period of time? Well, um, it'll usually be something along the lines of probably like $100 million. So mm-hmm. a $250 million would, might be the price that someone might purchase that business if it's growing, right? And if it's growing very fast, you, you might get 
one and a half times revenues or two times revenues. Um, so most of the proposals you want to see going up to let let's call it a hundred. Not that that's <laughs> really much that's easier. Still, yeah, it's still you pretty know, hard. I mean, it might as well be sure, half a billion. Sure, exactly <laughs> right. And you know, some of those time periods are longer. They could be you know seven, eight years uh, down the line. But you're right. I mean, you're talking about experiencing significant growth, and and from the perspective of you know, uh, a food business that takes place in four walls, you're talking about multiple locations and you're talking about multiple locations being opened up per year, right? And so almost simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and for many restaurateurs, you know, to even think about a second location usually is, is after that period of paying back when it's successful investors, and you right? don't have any more, you have smaller debt or you have mm -hmm. a, a bona fide, strong concept with a audience and, you know, customers who are interested and loyal to the brand and For buzz sure. and all those kinds of things. I mean, Shake Shack is a good example. Shake Shack was the one solo location in Madison Square Park for... I'm going to say maybe three or four years before they opened up a second location. It was well, a and it was while. A, it was a hot dog cart first. It was a, yeah, it was a... It was a, it was a hot dog a cart, cart in the park that they pushed out of the front doors of 11 of Madison Of 11 Madison, park. yeah. Um, I, I want to say it was even maybe 10 years ago. I, I, a, a long time ago, it was a part of um, pre-Madison Park sort of refurbishment yes. and that was a part of how they were starting to raise you know funds and create you know some different kind of community touch points within the mm -hmm. park and so it literally started off as a as a hot dog cart for sure and now you've got companies like i think i heard that sweet green is opening up a location a week or every other week this year so 50 sweet greens 25 to 50 sweet greens this coming year coming out in 2018 yeah yeah so what is the what what do you think the principal barriers are for restaurant and food products to even get to that way of thinking is it is it because you come from finance in a world where you're talking about big numbers and and these types of things are just par for the course and so it's a natural scale to be thinking about is it because people are making food one dish at a time and it's hard to even get there is it just because the numbers are so scary in the restaurant world that nobody wants to take that much risk? Yeah, I, th I think it's a couple of reasons. I think um, driving to that scale, I think, requires a certain amount of people infrastructure, right? To be able to open up multiple facilities a year requires a team whose job it is to only do that. It requires a team to, to train, and it requires you know, marketing and branding that's over and above just you know, a sign outside your front door. And it's, um, it's, it's an infrastructure that many people who know how to make great food, it's just two totally different skill sets, right? Just you could make the, the greatest pizza in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are an expert on, you know, real estate finance or contract negotiation or, or, or any of that. So I think one of the primary skills that you need as an entrepreneur is a, is a team builder. Um, and building for 
these kinds of teams, I mean, first of all, there are really only a handful of examples of people who were present for the beginning stages of a multi-unit chain uh, that's sort of in this generation um, that was sort of skyrocketed, right? Because when we think of, you know, the, the big chains, right, they've been around for a long time. And so you're really pulling from only a handful of people that even have that experience. Um, I think as you see that happen more and more, much like in the tech world, uh, PayPal threw off a bunch of new entrepreneurs who had that, you know, experience. I'm sure you will see former, you know, uh, Shake Shack uh, employees go off and start their own businesses. I'm sure hopefully one day we'll see former Ample Hills employees after experiencing that, that rocket ship go off and do, and do those new things. So, so being present for that, I think, uh, gives people the experience necessary. And I also think the, the financing side. There are very few investors who hold themselves out to want to invest at this stage in ideas that plan to be national and plan to be national within four walls type businesses. And so if you don't uh, if you don't know those people and talk to them, like it wouldn't even occur to you that anyone would fund you to do that kind of plan. Um, so you have to be sort of in those kinds of environments to think that that's even possible. Financing, very, very important to all kinds of businesses and equally important to Heritage Radio Network. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We are completely member and sponsor supported. And we are going to take a quick break right now to find out who the amazing people are who are helping us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Stay with us. Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founded sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods got its start when Patrick Martin's first stepped foot onto Frank Reese's Kansas farm in 2001. Back then, Frank was the only farmer in America raising true heritage turkeys with recorded lineages tracing back more than 150 years. Patrick knew instantly he'd found a unique moment, an opportunity to go beyond acknowledging these breeds as being jeopardized and to actually do something to save them. Patrick asked Frank to ramp up production and made a promise to him that if he would raise them, Heritage Foods USA would sell them. That was the moment that Heritage Foods slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today we are talking with Charlie O'Donnell, founder and partner of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, the first 
Venture Fund in Brooklyn. If you want to follow his business, and he writes quite a bit and blogs and has events, you can follow him on social media at CEONYC. You can follow the business at BBDOTVC. Or check out the website, brooklynbridge.vc. We're talking right now about why is it that more food and restaurant businesses aren't funded by venture money. And it kind of comes down to, I think, scalability and also it just being so different from the way people run businesses. I, I do think that sometimes it's hard enough to even imagine saying a word like I'm going to grow my business revenue to $100 million a year let alone being able to figure out a way to ladder up to that. So one of the things that we talked about just before the break was Charlie makes the interesting point that um, staffing a business and hiring a team around your business is perhaps the first most crucial step to figuring out how to get there. So if you're a person who's starting a food business or has a restaurant and obviously your main concern is making delicious product and he's his fun group has invested in ample hills creamery which is a good example to talk about because they do one thing they do ice cream they do it really well you have to go in real life to an ample hills creamery ice cream shop to have it you can order it online now oh you can order it online now okay exciting um but that is not something, if you put down you know, five businesses on the table and said, pick the one that you think is venture ready, I, I would not have guessed the ice cream shop. It is the company that most people wind up asking about when they're curious about Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. And, and I, would, I would put forth that Ample Hills is a brand that has the potential for national reach. And there are a fair number of higher-end ice cream brands, and many of them are very urban. They are um, artisanal in the sort of style and flavorings. There's, um, you know, they're experimental. They're interesting. Um, You can go out and get, you know, lavender ice cream or earl grey ice cream or or you know blue smoky cheese. bacon exactly. fennel ice cream exactly. from a truck frozen with ni- liquid nitrogen exactly exactly and and you know what many of those are really really fantastic but i'm i'm not sure they play in des moines i'm not sure they play um really across a a, a wide variety of palettes and and ample hills to me plays to seven-year-olds all across the country who like marshmallowy, gooey, chunky, you know, how many crazy things can you, you pour into to, to something? And, 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 and let's, be, let's be fair to the seven-year-old. In, in all of us. Yeah, yes, in all exactly, of us. Yes, exactly. Because it's a lot of grown-ups mm-hmm. standing in line at Shake Shack for the concretes and the shakes and all sure, of that. Sure, sure. And... And so I think with that in mind, uh, when Brian and Jackie started the business, I think they, they knew that while it started in Brooklyn, it was not um, limited to Brooklyn. That, you know, their, their branding is not something where you say, oh, that's, that's, that's really Brooklyn. It's, it's actually a very um, traditional, it's... it's heavy on storytelling they have characters I would call it the the sort of very 
uh, fashionable and hip, old timey. It's a little old timey, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but you know, I think it reminds people of good dessert experiences, great dessert experience they had in their childhood at the, you know, the the shop on Main Street. And that's one of the things too is like you go to an Ample Hills. They want you to come there. They have booths. They have a roof deck in their Gowanus location, and in one of their new locations will also have that. And so. Um, I think they were um, conscious that it was uh, that it could have national reach. Um, there's a national example of that, right? Ben and Jerry's became a, a fairly large exit, and Ben and Jerry's is an inspiring company to anyone who's gotten inspired in the ice cream space. And I think one that's on the the their current upward trajectory and I don't think we know where they're going is Big A ice cream. Oh, sh- sure. You know, started in a truck, now they have stores, now they have pints in retail and a cookbook and all those kinds of things and I don't think that I, I think that, you know, is also a surprising current ice cream explosion story. Oh yeah, there's there's a fair number of them and I and but one of the other things that also uh, I think pushed them to think bigger is um, being in New York, there are some people here who have a fair amount of money, and they got inbound from an investor, and it wasn't me. So they opened the ice cream shop. It's doing really well. Mm-hmm. They have a great product, a great experience. Mm-hmm. They themselves were not necessarily thinking funding and expansion. They had an investor come to them and say, this is a great product. Have you thought of expanding? Yeah, I, I think they they had some near-term needs. Mm-hmm. They knew that just making ice cream in their shops was a very expensive way to make ice cream. I and think they, limiting also in terms of volume. In terms of volume. I think they, they thought they had something that was good enough to be on shelves in other places, but there was sort of a gap of how do we get from here to there? And, you know, they explored bank bank loans and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, banks aren't the most risk-taking of uh, investors. And, and somebody came to them and... and made an offer and you know much like a lot of food and beverage um, entrepreneurs deal with it was a little bit of a shark tank offer it was a little bit of like here's this amount of money that's more money than you've really ever thought of but for a very large chunk of your business and that was a very difficult problem and they were considering it and somebody uh, recommended to them that um, they talked to me about this because literally my office was two blocks away and I was in there all the time and and I sat down with them and and said well you know I I think we I can help you plan this out and and oh by the way you know the kinds of things we're thinking about are how do you not run out of money who do you hire what should your goals be these are all the same questions that all of the tech companies that I invest in are, are going after. And then I, I kind of got there on the investment. I said, well, actually, I, I think these national aspirations could produce the kinds of returns that my investors would be very happy with. Tech startups have been such a cultural business phenomenon of the last, I would say, 10 years. They're relatively new, but very, very quickly with the accelerators and the incubators and, you know, sort of reading about it in the news, it very quickly fell into a very specific protocol and path to sort of launch and success. Mm -hmm. You can find online any number of websites 
where you can look at decks and videos and somebody will walk you through what you need. The, on your blog, there's a great mm -hmm. video of what to put in your pitch deck. So for the uh, tech entrepreneur or the startup entrepreneur, there are a lot of templates and roadmaps that are well-established, I think, to follow, to take people through the thought process, the building process, to get to that you know, six-figure exit deal, seven-figure exit deal, eight, nine, ten. Restaurants don't have that, though. I don't think when you think about you know, sitting down and I'm going to start a food business, there are no similar resources of... What does my proposal look like? What does my pitch look like? I don't even think restaurant and food people think about launching a business in terms of a pitch. Could restaurants and food people simply pick up some of those startup resources, utilities, frameworks, and, and sort of follow that path? Do they need to adjust because it is food? Yeah, I think... Should somebody start a restaurant incubator? You, you've you've really hit upon a, a real pain point, and and not just in food and beth, but quote unquote small business or local business in general. I think you have local and neighborhood examples of success, but you know the the popular restaurant in your neighborhood that founder is not blogging, right? They're they're no. not sharing you know uh, exactly you know how they got there and the mistakes that they made, and and I think that's a missed opportunity for chambers of commerce and and local you know city agencies or whatever to connect small business owners uh who are starting out with one unit uh, with uh best practices I, I i think um you know that would be incredibly helpful there are starting to become some uh food incubators there's there's one called foodx Chobani has set up an incubator mm -hmm. for food, food businesses. And so you're starting to see some of the people take that startup and tech model um, and, and apply it to these types of businesses in, in small ways. But it does need some adjustment. Um, you know, food and beverage investors don't necessarily look for the same types of things that uh, tech investors do. I mean, there's a little bit of overlap here and there, but... Uh, your story is going to be crafted in a little different way. And one of the key things, for example, in the, the food, you know, the sort of more CPG side of, of food is that uh, distribution is obviously really key, right? And, and we think about in tech of like, oh, you just build an app and put it on the app store and you don't need to like, you know, maybe... Exactly, and you get downloads. And you just get downloads, right? You count downloads and clicks and likes and how it, many Instagram followers you have. It, it doesn't quite work that way on the Whole food shelves. You, you can't go from, you know, selling 20 pizzas a day to selling 200,000 pizzas a day right. overnight. No, you that just, would be incredibly support, difficult. You can't support that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, it is a little bit of a different track, but I, but I also think that who is starting some of the food businesses today uh, is changing. And, you know, these entrepreneurs are more tech savvy, more social media savvy. So the, the networking that happens on social media, uh, the connectedness of those founders, I think, is uh, changing a little bit. And so you're, you're seeing uh, more collaboration, more, you know, so for example, I mean, Ample Hills worked with uh, 
baked by Melissa to come up with a really terrific uh, Summer of Love ice cream flavor oh, last year. And, and it was one of my favorite flavors that they've ever done. And, uh, you know, so the, that type of thing is happening uh, more and more. Uh, you know, R- Roberta's will show up at Three's Brewery and right. uh, on their rotation. So you're seeing a lot more collaboration, I think. So one of the other things that we talked about and, you know, sort of using the technology and connectedness of, of social media and blogging um, is a good segue into something else that we talked about prior to the show was there is so much technology available now to people, to businesses in life that, you know, similar to what you're talking about now, that most restaurant and food people are not really tapping into the power of social media, community, and connectivity. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, you know, your top line um, tech services that you think restaurants and food companies are really missing out on the benefits and the efficiencies of? Well, I think you're seeing a lot of uh, financial infrastructure tools pop up on the the restaurant side, right? And, And so, there's some basics that people know they have to get, right? There's there's going to be a cash register app and, you know, depending on, there's a whole slew of them that they can sort of pick. But, you know, on the marketing and branding side, I think that's an area where there's um, a real opportunity to sort of tell your story, drive people into your business. And, um, you know, restaurants are sort of familiar with the, the, the seamlesses and the, the Yelps of the world. But in terms of brand building, uh, I think there's an opportunity there. I mean, we talked about uh, video is is one where there are some really compelling stories um, of how people got started or family members that are involved in, in different businesses that would make for really compelling video content. And video content gets a fair amount of engagement on on. Uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram or whatever, but people think of it as sort of very expensive. You have to bring a camera crew in and, and editing and whatever. I, I've backed a company called OpenReel, and, and OpenReel is a remote tool that enables you to sit down with your own phone and have a director essentially walk you through a video shoot and be able to produce two, three, four videos, depending on how quickly you can get through them, in an hour period for a fraction of the cost of having a crew come in and do it. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that somebody sees a video, somebody sees a story that might touch off uh, a news article, a review, or just um, let people in your neighborhood know why you started this business in the first place. And it's a lot easier, I think, that people can think. Social media, marketing, brand building, Those are things that my guess is a lot of restaurants and and food companies think about as important, but not a fundamental piece of the business when they're building their business and planning for it. And I think this perhaps goes back to what you were saying earlier about building a team of people who have the vision for all the different business channels that you need to grow a business to that level. You know, when you think about a tech company or a tech product or even a business company, they would most people would never think of opening a business to scale nationally and not have some marketing department Mm -hmm. or PR department or a director of marketing and social media 
advertising to be channeling all of that. Um, that would be a significant, you know, C-suite position. Most people would have a slot for it. You know, you'd have the CEO founder, you'd have finance, you'd have operations, you'd have human resources, and you'd probably have marketing. Those are probably the big five, sure. right? Restaurants don't think about that, I don't think. And I don't think food companies do necessarily. I think, you know, it's chef, manager, beverage person, Pay the rent. HR person, you know, accountant. And then all of those things become these sort of add-ons of do we have the money to pay a publicist? Do we have the money to pay a marketing person? Do you think that it's important if restaurants really want to scale at that level when they sit down and they think about their business plan that they scope their business and staffing like a non-food business? No, I 100% agree. And I think one of the ways they can do that is one of the benefits of getting an investor is that an investor might join your board and bring with them the discipline of and having a board meeting, mm -hmm. right? Just even sitting down and saying, what are we going to do this month? What did we try and do last month? Did it work? Did it not work? I would recommend any business, food, restaurant, create a little board for yourself. Find some people who will sit down with you, two or three people, and ask you questions and and hold you accountable so you can walk through the list that you just said. What are we doing for marketing? Now, it's maybe not realistic to hire a marketing person, but it's certainly realistic for the founders of a restaurant on a monthly basis to just sit down for a half hour, hour, and say, how are we going to drive people into the business this month? How are we going to carve out time? What can we think about ahead of time creatively what's coming around the calendar what events and all that sort of stuff and i think just dedicating some time um even if you don't necessarily have the resources to actually planning things because otherwise you're just playing whack-a-mole with your business and you're just waiting for that next pipe to burst or uh delivery not to come on time and you're just catching things as they come and you're never really getting on top of your business and pushing it forward Great, great advice. And um, I'm sorry to say that we are out of time for this episode of Tech Bites. And I, I know that Charlie and I could keep talking probably well into, you know, the end of the day's programming schedule. If you want to um, hear more from Charlie, you can go to brooklynbridge.vc online. You can also follow him on social media at CEONYC or at BBO. TVC. If you want to see him in real life and you want to have him listen to your startup idea and give you some feedback, go to his website and look for a series of events that he's doing called This Is Going To Be Big. That's his blog and he will be doing a series of events in January and February called Fix Your Startup Pitch For Good, where he's going to listen to eight startups at each event and give you the short answer of what he thinks about it. If you want to hear more from me, I will be hosting a panel on tech and food at General Assembly next week on Thursday, January 25th at 6.30 p.m. We'll have a bunch of founders and CEOs of food tech talking about how you can get your startup off the ground in 2018. We will post information on all these things on TechBytes social media. You can find us at TechBytesHRN on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. 
And you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio to subscribe, download, and leave amazing five-star reviews. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. Thank you for listening to this first episode in 2018 of Tech Bytes with our guest Charlie O'Donnell from Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Come back and see us again on Thursday next week at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Have a great day. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.